out there mushing Krakens. I almost feel sorry for Hi there, and welcome to the Kraken Busters. A history of the U.S. sea monster conflict of the 1940s and 1950s. This is episode 9, The Breakdown, 1947. I'm Keith Pilly. Okay, so for the past few weeks, we've talked about the cluster of disasters in February 1947, when first Admiral William Halsey led the U.S. Third Fleet into the utter debacle of Operation Typhoon, and then right on the heels of that, a group of creatures led by the kelp men attacked Pearl Harbor. The self-sacrifice of Major Dennis Young mauled and drove off the kelp men, but not before it and the rest of the creatures had essentially destroyed Pearl Harbor as a functioning naval base. This week, what happens after a major naval power is driven out of an entire ocean? Stunned paralysis gripped the upper levels of the United States government when word of the twin disasters of Operation Typhoon and Pearl Harbor made their way back to the mainland. AIDS pushed Harry Truman to take decisive action, any type of decisive action, to take advantage of the precious few hours they possessed before the story got out and prompted a public panic. But Truman, stricken by the news, could do nothing spending hours in his office staring wordlessly at the sheaf of radio transcripts that told the story. Late at night on February 14, 1947, a news radio station in Minneapolis broke the story. The Third Fleet had been vanquished and was retreating in disgrace, and Pearl Harbor had been laid to waste. The panic pulsed through the news media overnight as reporters burned the midnight oil to talk to sources and fill in gaps. America woke up on the 15th to a media firestorm eclipsing even that which they'd experienced from the 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor. The morning's headlines were apocalyptic. Disaster in the Pacific in the Chicago Tribune. Defeated at sea in the Kansas City Star. Thousands dead, several ships sunk in the Seattle Post. Panic gripped the country. Desperate, scared people rioted in Seattle and Baltimore requiring the deployment of the National Guard to contain the crowds. A mob in Sacramento tried to overrun a National Guard armory, only to be barely repulsed by a phalanx of soldiers with fixed bayonets. In the White House, President Truman slowly began to emerge from his shock and held a series of meetings with Secretary Forrestal, Admiral Nimitz, and other naval advisors. And the picture quickly became clear to him. The United States had lost any semblance of control in the Pacific Ocean. Late on the afternoon of the 15th, Truman quietly met with Secretary Forrestal and the heads of the service branches and informed them that his conclusion was that Hawaii could no longer be supported by sea and that any attempt to do so would put lives at needless risk. As such, he continued, the islands of Hawaii would be left to their own devices until some future time when the fleet was capable of relieving them. A mixture of shock and relief settled into the room. Several of the service branch commanders had quietly felt the same way, but didn't want to be the ones to suggest abandoning United States territory. The decision coming from Truman made the awful eventuality a little bit easier to swallow. No formal announcement was made, of course, that Hawaii was being cut loose. It was purely a matter of quietly changing naval operational orders. 
Truman and his staff within the White House knew that the word would get out before long. If nothing else, dozens of shipping companies were going to have to be told that they were now officially discouraged from shipping anything to Hawaii and would receive no protection if they tried. And the Truman administration was realistic about the likelihood of everyone involved in this process honoring the confidential notice. But the expectation was that it would take time for these leaks to develop, time that could be used formulating a strategy to get ahead of the story. The leaks came much more quickly than that, though, and from an unexpected source. In Honolulu, General Arthur Peters, the military governor of Hawaii, was, as a matter of standard military procedure, copied on all naval orders relevant to the security of Hawaii. Peters saw the relevant operations orders and put two and two together immediately. He dispatched a furious cable to Secretary Forrestal, urging reconsideration. A reply came back almost immediately, chastising him for violating the chain of command and informing him that the orders were firm, that Hawaii was on its own for the time being. Peters then called Bob Dorsey, an Associated Press reporter stranded in Honolulu, and asked him if he was still cabling stories back to the mainland to be filed. Dorsey affirmed that he was. So Peters issued a statement, quote, As military governor of Hawaii, I have been busy for the past 36 hours directing the cleanup and recovery effort at the Pearl Harbor Naval Base after an attack by the kelp man and countless other hostile sea creatures of varying sizes, an attack that killed at least 400 men, sank several ships, and left the base facilities in a state of absolute ruin. As one can imagine, dealing with the immediate aftermath of this attack has been an overwhelming and critical task. People are not done dying from this event. But I have been distracted from this effort by the cowardly, and I use that word advisedly, decision by stateside authorities to hang Hawaii out to dry by suspending naval support for transports bringing much-needed supplies to the islands. Yes, the U.S. Navy has decided to cut and run from U.S. territory. This represents nothing short of a betrayal, again, using that word advisedly, of the people of Hawaii, both military and civilian. This betrayal would be devastating if it had occurred at any time. To have it happen immediately after the worst attack on our soil since 1941 is unconscionable. I urge all patriotic Americans of conscience to contact their elected officials and demand that this travesty be undone. And I would remind those in Washington, if you truly think it's a good idea to leave Hawaii on our own, your bulwark in the Central Pacific might just start asking itself what the point of continued allegiance would be. End quote. Peter's statement stoked the media inferno to even higher levels. Headlines once again were stark, cut off, alone, hung out to dry. In a follow-up interview with Walter Winchell, conducted by telephone, Peters refused to disavow the word secession as a possible outcome. The White House was deluged with angry telegrams. Quote, you cowards, I did not spend two years fighting, redacted, in the Pacific to lose Hawaii to a bunch of squids. I hope you rot in hell. First Lieutenant Adam Morrison, USMC, end quote, ran a typical one. The controversy stung Truman. He saw himself as a pragmatic leader making tough decisions for the public good, the same way he framed all of his wartime decision-making. 
He complained bitterly to his wife and aides that he felt like he was being misunderstood by a fickle public who were indulging in the luxury of complaining without facing the responsibility of decision-making. But he was also resolved to stand firm. He'd made the decision, and he, characteristically, would stick to his guns, both publicly and privately. Quote, Don't these dumb sons of bitches understand that if there was any humanly possible way to hold on to Hawaii, we would? End quote. He asked Forrestal. Over the next week, Truman was burned in effigy at least three times in mob incidents in Kentucky, Florida, and Idaho. The Secret Service went into overdrive investigating a rash of reported threats of varying levels of credibility to overthrow or kill, quote, that traitor coward Truman, end quote. The decision to withdraw support from Hawaii had consequences far beyond the borders of the United States, too. As February melted into March and the initial domestic firestorm simmered down to festering discontent, other world leaders began to exploit the growing power vacuum in the Pacific Basin left by American withdrawal. The most consequential of these situations was in Japan. Soviet forces had been dominating the occupation of Japan for months, with only an unsupported rump of American troops maintaining an increasingly untenable presence. Complaining bitterly and constantly, General Douglas MacArthur had been reduced to negotiating with Soviet occupation authorities for food and basic supplies for his dwindling occupation force, which had steadily constricted its operational zone to a small area on the south end of Kagoshima, with Soviet forces controlling the rest. This had been the status quo before the abandonment of Hawaii. In the aftermath of that disaster, Stalin and his generals felt more emboldened to act. Marshal Kulik, the head of the Soviet Occupation Authority for Japan, announced that at the end of March, the people of Japan would be given the opportunity to conduct a plebiscite to vote on a new communist government. With two weeks between the announcement and the vote, MacArthur complained ferociously, but was in no position to mount any serious opposition. His troops were literally being fed by the Soviets at this point. In Washington, Truman and Secretary of State George Marshall protested vigorously through diplomatic channels and to the press, but really they were in no more of a position to do anything than MacArthur was. The vote was conducted and passed overwhelmingly. Within days, a pro-Soviet puppet government was installed and offered the Soviets unlimited use of Japanese military and naval facilities in perpetuity. MacArthur and the remaining U.S. forces were asked to leave, ask, um, you know, asked, and used the meager naval resources at their disposal to evacuate to the Philippines, where they immediately became embroiled in low-intensity guerrilla warfare against Soviet-backed communist insurgents. Of course, Hawaii and Japan weren't the only U.S. outposts in the Pacific left to fend for themselves by Truman's withdrawal of naval cover for shipping convoys. At the end of the war, literally hundreds of small outposts and garrisons had been littered throughout the Central and South Pacific. And while most of the temporary ad hoc wartime installations had been in the process of demobilization through 1946 and then rush evacuated as the crisis mounted, Dozens of posts of various sizes remained, now completely cut off from any sort of outside supply except for meager, dwindling air transport routes. Guam had been a U.S. territorial possession since the Spanish-American War around 1900, 
and hosted a sizable American naval facility before the war. An early conquest of Japan's in 1941, it had been liberated by U.S. Marines in 1944 and quickly resumed its role as a key American naval hub. After the collapse of logistical support from the mainland, the sizable military presence on the island, which now included a large garrison of Marines, was able to subsist on local food, since Guam was large enough to produce enough food to support a sizable indigenous population. Indeed, one of the most notable dynamics of Guam's period of isolation was the inversion of the power relationship between the American military presence and the indigenous population, with the former now wholly dependent on the goodwill of the latter for survival. Fortunately for the personnel at the Guam bases, the people of the islands, American citizens all, still looked at the troops and sailors as liberators and were reasonably pleased to be able to help them if with a sense that any lingering debt was now being paid and that maybe a new debt was being incurred in the other direction. The period of isolation did not work out this well at the American naval base at Midway Island. Midway, a small spit of sand and coral a few hundred miles northwest of Hawaii, had been a crucially important air base and submarine base during the war. The Japanese attempt to capture the island had arguably been the hinge upon which the entire war in the Pacific turned. The island's strategic importance meant that, even after demobilization, the military presence on it was sizable. But unlike Guam, Midway Atoll was small and utterly incapable of producing enough food to support thousands of men. Previously, this hadn't been a problem. The islands had been supported by sea and air from Hawaii. But now the sea route from Hawaii to Midway wasn't passable, and the air route was quickly rendered moot by dwindling fuel supplies and the fact that Hawaii didn't have much in the way of surplus food to share. The situation on Midway deteriorated quickly. The base commander, Captain Alan Richmond, cut rations immediately to the bare minimum to keep people alive and ordered a systematic, measured harvest of the island's bird population, the famous Goonie Birds, for food. But morale broke down almost immediately, and with it, so did discipline. On August 4, 1947, facilities on the Pacific Naval Radio Circuit received an announcement that Richmond had been overthrown and executed, and that a Patriots Committee led by three junior marine officers, was now in control of Midway Island, which was seceding from the United States and declaring itself as the Pacific Republic. There were no further radio communications from Midway, and the rest of the story is one that can only be deduced by after-the-fact investigation and deduction. In the mid-50s, intelligence teams, including, fortuitously, some archaeologists, landed on Midway and determined that there had been several rounds of bloody struggle there, presumably including several after the Patriots Committee putsch, and that one of those battles had started a fire that had consumed at least some of the island's remaining supplies. After driving the island's bird population to extinction, the team concluded, a dwindling group of survivors had apparently turned to cannibalism. The island's silence had been in part because the supply of fuel for generators had been exhausted. It appeared that at least a small group of people had lived for several years without electricity. The estimate of the archaeologist with the investigation party was that the last person on Midway had probably died sometime in late 1949, although the exact time frame could never be determined. Back on the mainland, 
Wealthy aviation enthusiast Howard Hughes had spent the war years developing a pair of new plane designs, theoretically for use in the war, although neither of them was ready in time for actual battlefield action. One of them, the XF-11, was a fast scout plane whose development was scuttled when Hughes crashed the prototype during a test flight. Hughes' other major wartime aviation project had more legs. Concerned with the enormous losses from U-boat predations in the Atlantic during the war, Hughes had a visionary notion. What about just building transport planes so enormous that they made ships unnecessary? Thus was born the idea for the Hughes H-4 Hercules, a titanic flying boat capable of carrying previously unthinkable amounts of cargo. With eight engines and a wingspan 20 feet longer than a football field, the Hercules was so gigantic to just defy belief even if you were looking at it. A quest for a light fuselage and working with wartime shortages led Hughes and his chief engineer Glenn Odekirk to build the plane out of wood. Hughes's many detractors took this opportunity to call the plane the Spruce Goose, although Hughes indignantly stuck with Hercules as the name. Whatever its name, the H-4 project had languished during the late war years and the early post-war years. Hughes's own sidelining by the XF-11 crash certainly didn't help matters here. But Hughes argued that what he was attempting was so revolutionary that pushing the boundaries of aviation as he, as he was inevitably meant slow progress. The detractors, in turn, argued that he was a mountebank and that the plane would never fly. Even as the sea monster crisis unfolded in the Pacific, Hughes faced growing calls for investigations and possible prosecution for war profiteering. But Hughes struggled on with his development, and as the disasters of 1947 unfolded, the canny billionaire saw that perhaps events had swung in his favor. Or, to take him at his word, he felt like his hour to help had finally arrived. An operational Hercules might make air logistics to Hawaii a viable option, possibly diffusing the growing political crisis. Through the summer of 1947, Hughes pushed Odekirk and his team to have the Hercules ready for a test flight by August 1st, despite Odekirk's repeated insistence that such a thing couldn't be possible until November at the earliest. As usual, Hughes's iron will prevailed, and an announcement was made that on August 3, 1947, the H-4 Hercules would undergo a powered taxi test with Hughes himself at the controls. The Hughes public relations machine went into overdrive, hyping this as the first step towards Howard Hughes personally bringing Hawaii back into the fold. The public, desperate for good news, was riveted. Excitement was high on the day of the 3rd. Although the official word had been that the test would consist of nothing more than powered taxiing on the surface off of Long Beach, years of Hughes bravura led the press and the public to expect that the aviator might try to push things. This sense was only heightened when it became apparent that the Hercules would be staffed with a full flight crew and a large press contingent. At 1.04 p.m., the Hercules pulled away from its dock, and Hughes maneuvered it out towards open water at low power. Just this maneuvering constituted a successful taxi test, but as everyone had expected and hoped, Hughes wasn't done. Once clear, he positioned the plane into the wind, ordered everyone on board to get ready, and slowly began opening the throttles with Odekirk stationed next to him to monitor the plane's engines and fuselage vibrations. 
The Hercules bucked and rattled as it sped up, but it held together, and Odekirk nodded at Hughes when they hit what they had previously decided would be the go-no-go point. Hughes opened the throttles further, and with a shudder the Hercules left the surface, moving laboriously above the waves at a height of a few feet. Still, it was a triumph just getting into the air, and Jason Caper, broadcasting the event for CBS Radio, was just starting to announce that the turn of the tide in the Pacific was clearly at hand with the flight of the Hercules, when a thick purple tentacle shot out of the water and latched onto the fuel tank hanging from the plane's starboard wing. The unbalanced force lurched the plane hard to the right, and it cartwheeled across the surface of the ocean, breaking up as it went. Though wounded, the octopus that had grabbed the plane surfaced and began eating the passengers, both dead and alive, including Howard Hughes. Glenn Odekirk and 11 other passengers were saved by the Coast Guard ship Resilient, which had been on hand in case of disaster, and whose skipper was brave enough to conduct the rescue with an octopus on hand. Any minimal hope of reconnecting the American presence in the Pacific to the mainland through air logistics had died with Howard Hughes and the Hercules. And that is it for this episode. Thank you, as always, for listening. Please join me next week as the military governor of Hawaii, feeling like he's been hung out to dry for too long, takes some really drastic action. Be well. Anchors away, son.